Welcome to our show, Holding Ground. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Each week, I'm joined by another therapist from the Anchor Light team to tackle important topics in mental health and psychotherapy. Our goal is to promote well being by normalizing mental health challenges. We are here holding ground for you every Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKNW. Good morning. You're listening to Holding Ground, the show that brings you a little bit of everything in the world of psychotherapy and mental health. And I'm very excited today because we have a special guest uh, on the show. Sarah Scutero still is a counselor, a trainer, an advocate, and a speaker with 30 years of experience. And she still finds joy and compassion in mental health and advocacy for overall healthcare. She has a specific interest and dedication to training and raising awareness of suicide intervention and prevention, which is a little bit of what we're going to be sharing with you today. Um, and her efforts have spanned setting range from have spanned ranging from major corporations in the private sector to community-based to nonprofit entities, educational settings, and hospitals. Her particular focus in her work is the growing need uh, for fast access to care and increasing the normalization of screening and asking about mental health factors across all health sectors. So Sarah, welcome to Holding Ground. We're so happy to have you today. Good morning, Laura. I'm really glad to be with you. And you have such a wealth of information to share with our listeners, um, specifically related to suicide intervention and prevention. So can you just tell me a little bit about the data around suicide? And we'll just start the conversation there. Sure. There's a many multiple layers of resources for suicide data and the leading entities that I look to and I would guide people to do are CDC, of course, mm -hmm. because they do national as well as international data comparisons. And then there is the um, Suicide Prevention Resource Center, which has some of the most up-to-date, really vetted information on suicide. And now having said that, there's many, many research studies going on contemporarily across the globe to look at this phenomenon because it is a global phenomenon. Mm. And, uh, and just staying up to date on it and looking at fluctuations and taking them with a big viewpoint, mm. I think is helpful to see what an incredible issue this is that faces yeah. humanity. Yeah. So, you know, you, you are working in the field and you're working with families and teens. And what are some of the things when you're educating families who have a, a child or a teen in crisis, what are some of the things that you tell them to watch out for? Well, there's the classic signs. Um, and then there's the not so classic signs, but let me start with the classic signs. Anytime we see a dip or a decline in activity or the pursuit of passions or interests that young people have had. This is a red flag mm. of this is something that maybe has sustained them, whether that's chess club or lacrosse or their friends or music. Mm. When I hear from families that they say, our son, our daughter, our niece, whoever that family mem member may be, is no longer doing those things. I said, that's a big red flag. Mm. The other things are withdrawal. Now, it's also pretty normative for teens to want privacy right, and right. Uh, to go to their room and shut their parents. the door. Right. But I, I always encourage families to think about what's the texture and the tenor of that withdrawal. Is it increasing in, in this busy life we're all leading? 
it can become challenging to pay attention to. But I have to tell you, Laura, one of the saddest things I hear from families is after the fact, when they're looking back and they're saying, I did notice something, but I didn't think it was that involved or that monumental. So parents, grandparents, guardians, aunties and uncles who are managing and helping raise our young people, they have good radar. It's important to make time and capacity to notice that radar. Mm. So that's some of the things that come to the forefront of my mind. Um, Also thinking about changes in friend groups. Um, I also, I really hear from a lot of kids that breakups these are tender young hearts, breakups and yeah. friendships and breakups and that young romantic relationships mm-hmm. are devastating. There's no context for young people to put that in. You know, they are not 25 being able to look back saying, I'll get over this. This is maybe their first brush of having somebody say, ah, not so much. I don't really care for you that much. Very devastating. Can yeah. Be super devastating. And like you said, they don't have that experience that maybe it's their first breakup and it feels like they're literally going to die and Mm -hmm. they don't have the, the experience to know that, Hey, this is going to pass. You're going to recover from this. You're going to date somebody new. So it is, it's a really tough time. Yeah. I can't see that this. Yeah. I don't have that perspective of, Oh, this is because this is maybe the biggest thing in my life right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then have you seen a, a rise in, um, suicidality during the pandemic? Did you notice that kids were really, that that was even more of an issue during that when we were all at home? And some people still are. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I, uh, I, I talk with colleagues throughout the state and this mm-hmm. region and nationally every day. And it is stunning. The increase rate, there's some estimates flying around out there that there's a 50% increase wow. in teen reporting of severe depression. So not Oh, I'm depressed because I'm not seeing my friends. Mm-hmm. This is severe depressions by standardized tools, um, self-administered that are pretty accurate when we look at the grand scheme of getting data and information. Mm. And in different communities, the risk factors that have been historically problematic, the pandemic has amplified them. So we talk about young people that maybe are living in rural areas where there's not access to services. They've been hit harder on many levels around depression and anxiety during the pandemic than young people that have access to resources in their communities. And we know that families and young people that don't have those natural supports, be that a faith connection, a sport Mm -hmm. connection, hobby connection, extended family connection, COVID shut so much of that down that it intensified the isolation and it intensified the lack of communication about what people are thinking or feeling or trying to grapple with. So it was a major, major cause of increase of depression, anxiety for adolescents. And so how can parents sort that out when, you know, you're seeing that maybe your kids withdrawn a little bit, Um, Maybe they're not as engaged in the same way that they used to be, but at the same time, we're living in a a global pandemic. We don't have access to the same thing. So some of that could be somewhat normal and how we're all responding to this. And then, then there are things that are going to be, you know, abnormal. So what, what can families do if they're not quite sure 
what, what they're looking for, or where their, where their kid is on the, on the spectrum spectrum of severity. Well, I'm going to tell you what families have actually taught me mm-hmm. and, um, and I pay attention to some of the research out there as well. <laughs> I think that this is the time that we have to lean in. Well, number one, I really like that you threw in this comment about everyone's grappling with this. Mm-hmm. So families are adults are trying to figure out how to rally and how to arrive and be present. And it's a doubling down or tripling down on our effort. First and foremost, the very thing I think people are hesitant to talk about, they need to talk about. Yeah. We know across any, any topic, the more we normalize the discussion, the more likely we are to have that discussion. So whether that's like grades from school or how things are going as they get ready to launch to go away to college or how they really, really are feeling and role modeling. So I think what families can do is role model that I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to show you that I, it doesn't mean I'm comfortable and this is easy for me, but I am going to put my step forward and talk about this and say, this is a very hard thing. This is very accurate and true for other people. I'm imagining it could be true for you, Mm. right? Yeah. So just really talking about it like we would do all of the hard topics. Um, Talking about it and normalizing that conversation is monumental. And to that point, I still get to sit in a room with a lot of teenagers alone. It's such a, I feel like it's a very intense journey and I feel very privileged. And I hear what they say they wish their families would ask them. So this is straight from a young person's brain power saying, I wish my mother or father would ask me about da, 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 da. And if it's around depression and anxiety, they're like, no, I think they might be too shy or too scared to ask me. So that's the clarion call right there. Don't be too shy. Don't be too scared. You might be shy and you might be scared. Ask anyway, talk anyway. And that's so great. You have the insider information of of your kids are wanting to share these things with you, but they don't know how to bring up the conversation. So they're want, so kids are expressing to you or teens are expressing to you. They want their parents to ask them about their mental health or their relationships. They do. And they want to know that it's going to not get too intrusive. I think there's some tact about Mm -hmm. doing this. So there's not a tact one-on-one class to teach. Yeah. (laughs) I think the first place to start is to say like, gosh, this is a hard time for me. Mm -hmm. This is really tough. I have to imagine it's tough for you too. Yeah. And sometimes we have to do the invitation to the conversation, right? Which means we introduce the topic and maybe we let it lie there in a stable state (laughs) and then circle back to it. Yeah. Because we're opening that door and sometimes we can't swing the door wide open. But if we think that they're not paying attention, I can gladly tell anyone listening that they are paying much keener attention to us than we are to them because mm. they can tell me they're like, I know this when this happens and um, they're not reporting out on it, but they're definitely paying deep attention to what we talk about and what we don't talk about. And if they do not have the story, or they do not have the conversation, they make up a story. So there you go. Yes. And, you know, we all do that with the lack of information. We're going to fill in our own narrative. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine for parents, you know, it's kind of a fine line of being intrusive or overbearing, or, you know, your kid is going to resist giving you information because it feels like you're demanding it of them. 
versus, you know, being able to open the door to that conversation so that they don't feel stressed out about their kids and they do know what is going on in their lives. Yeah, I think the I think the groundswell introduction of any kind of conversation is to say I really care about you. Yeah, it's important to me, right? I value what you think, and uh, there's my keen saying that I like to offer teens as well as families: go slow mm. so you can go fast. Yeah, it's better to have five minutes of something that is going back and forth between you and your young person, and then leave it alone. Because what you've done is you've built this example and you've actually had an encounter that didn't blow up, um, didn't go off the rails or go into a complete different topic. And that is vital. Mm. That sticks. And I actually, uh, you know, I, I got to meet with some families last week and I got to meet with them together and then meet with their young person alone. And the young people, it was stunning. They could say to me, I remember about mid-January when my um, auntie said such and such. <laughs> so, and this would be when you look at them, like a 15-year-old that you might not think was paying attention to anything except Snapchat or what was on um, the, the radio. So right. um, that, that, told, that really told me something. And all of them had instances like that. They're like, oh, no, no, no. I, I saw that. I caught that. I noticed that. I know when my family is stressed. So they're thinking about it. And the underlying support scaffolding, if you will, is then having a conversation about it. And that is just so important to, to get that message out, because I do think that sometimes parents are fearful that even talking about suicide might plant the seed in their child's mind. And so they feel fearful of even having the conversation, but in fact, it, it really is the opposite of that. Correct. It is the opposite of that. There's, um, I, I mean, I, I can also, I can speak to there's a reality that when there's not a cogent conversation, that there is a contagion effect of kids feeling sad and talking about this and getting very um, tunnel visioned around like that's an option when they have a peer group and there's something going on. We've seen that in a couple of communities, even in Washington state, Yeah, um, that it becomes part of the menu for kids to think about it. That's likely why I'm going to promote this idea that it's imperative that we talk with them about that. So we're dismantling this isolated perspective of I'm alone. I'm not talking to anybody about this. My friend just tried to kill themselves or my, or worse. And so now this is an option. You know, I never thought about it that way. That's actually a truth, but it doesn't increase. We know, we know, we know from the data that it decreases risk when families are open and honest and willing. That does not mean I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. It simply means that I'm going to turn towards you and say, I see you. Yeah. Now more than ever is a vital time for families to turn toward their young people and say, I see you and I hear you. You may still not get a hundred dollars in the car to go out Saturday night, but I'm seeing you and I'm hearing you. I'm I'm actually bearing witness to you in some powerful way that your suffering is real. I may not be able to solve it, but I see you and I'm here with you. You're not alone. Number one thing, you're not alone. And what do you see for maybe parents who have never personally experienced suicidal thoughts or are feeling suicidal and now they have a, a child that is, is dealing with this issue? What are some things that maybe they don't understand about the experience that might be helpful for them to know? I think one of the paradoxical things about suicide is that there's a 
promotion of a myth. I mean, this is longstanding that, oh, things get worse, they get gradually worse and worse and worse, and then maybe I start to plan, and that there's this longitudinal approach to this intense emotion. And in reality, that's not true. There's a, I mean, there's some stunning research, really contemporary research was done out of Texas. And it talked about the time, be, the time between when somebody thought and they were in a moment of despair that could come on quite suddenly and that they would actually act on, ex, you know, really trying to grab a hold of something to hurt themselves or mm-hmm. kill themselves was between five and eight minutes. Wow. So I think what I could impart to families is that it's really true. Sometimes things can look and sound and feel like they're going quite well. And then a young person who let's go back to the beginning, they don't have a lot of experience under their belts. Mm -hmm. They don't have a life context that says, this is awful right now and it will not always feel this way. Right. So they can be quite suddenly propelled into behaviors or I I hesitate to use impulsive. Mm -hmm. I'd rather say it's a big reaction Mm -hmm. to a compounding set of stressors that I do not see a way to work around. And leading that to the family discussion, it might be very helpful for parents to say, you know, when I've seen you solve problems before, or this is what I notice about how you can and have managed stress. We want to remind young brains that even though they've been on the planet 15 years, 14 years, 10 years, 20 years, they have had some episodes of that. They don't have enough body of evidence to help them face these really intense moments. And that's what's usually shocking to, to uh, uh, everyone who's meeting with you, adults as well as kids, is that they, things seemed well, and actually they were. We have yeah. the data now from people that have had the lived experience and they, they lived experience, meaning things got so disparate, so abrupt that they did make a strong effort to kill themselves, but they did not die. Yeah. And when they're able to talk back with us and report back with us and share with us, it's like, it wasn't, I wasn't having a terrible day. What I had was a terrible, terrible hour. Mm. Or I got this news that was the tipping point that I was managing all these other factors that were not going well. And then to reference that, then the breakup came. And that was the grain of sand that tipped my scale. Didn't really see it coming. Didn't really have a plan. So that's often how it occurs is quite suddenly. And um, that's why it's so valuable and really incredibly important for us to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening. Do we see a tender buildup that even our 18 year old might say like, well, that's not a big deal. It's like, hold on, mm-hmm. wait a minute. It might be a big deal. Like, right? So- And it's really on the parents to, or the community or whoever is in the child's life to, to teach these skills, because I mean, I I have a lot of teachers in my family and school is teaching academics. And I think there's even less focus than maybe when we were in school on, on social dynamics and interactions, and there's a lack of resources in that realm. And so if, if the parents aren't talking about this and the kid 
and the kids aren't on their own seeking out that information, which I'm sure is mostly the case when we're talking about teens, they're not going to know skills around distress tolerance or coping or, or how to get through tough things. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, um, I'm a big, big fan of DBT. It's mm-hmm. one of the um, <laughs> dialectical behavioral therapy. It's yes. one of the pinnacle therapies that we know helps reduce suicide yeah. and helps reduce anxiety and depression. So when I think about those skills, I, I think about what would the world be like if we taught that in fifth and sixth grade? Because when we see the horrifying stories about kids that got bullied on Twitter, they got bullied on Snapchat, that's a big erosion. And they don't know how to combat that or actually share with people. This is going on. Yeah. And I don't know what to do about it. And they really just little young human beings say, I just can't take it anymore. They don't think of, there's actually five other options or five other strategies. They're like, I can't do this anymore. And I cannot face going to school tomorrow because all of these friends are going to know. And I, you know, it's really, it's really awful. And we've seen that in the media um, reporting out on that too. Yes. I mean, I, I only work with adults in my practice, but I work with adults who are severely bullied in school who are now in their fifties and are still trying to cope with, with the damage of that and didn't have anyone to help or, or talk them through that. So having those conversations with your kids is just the first step, even if it, if it feels scary. So I'm curious, what are you seeing right now? You know, especially in the last two years with teen deaths or, or ER visits, what's, what's, kind of the current lens landscape of things? Well, experientially, what I could say is, um, sadly enough, we're seeing younger and younger mm. children take their lives or make efforts to take their lives where they end up hospitalized. Yeah. Um, and prior to COVID, we were seeing more young people have instances at school settings during the day not in the home. The numbers for male and female fluctuate year to year, month to month. So we still see a glaring uh, number of young people. And I was reading some research. I I won't say that it's 100% accurate because I needed to compare it to other research, but that during the pandemic, clearly the numbers went up. Hmm. Some estimates are 30 fold increase in efforts of young people to kill themselves. Wow. Um, and we know that we are facing some other epidemics that are really problematic with the introduction of substances and substance use is on the rise again. Yeah. Um, accidental overdosing and accidental exposure to medications that are um, sort of easily accessible. Yeah. And the the rapidity of their effect is the most dangerous factor, right? We know the more lethal the mean of killing oneself, the more problem we have around that issue. Guns are our number one problem around suicide in our country. Um, And access to now we know fentanyl laced medicine Mm -hmm. and opportunities to get a hold of that, that, it looks like it's just a regular painkiller and it's not that this is a compounding, compounding issue for young people 
in the last two years. So what are some resources? I mean, because there's a lot of challenges for parents right now and their kids to, to work through some of these things. And it is so scary with, I, I had another guest where we talked about fentanyl and, you know, a, one, a child could think that they were recreationally trying a, a drug yep. and that's the end of the, that's the end. That's um, so what are some resources parents can access maybe to support them in having these conversations or even outside resources if, if they need more support? Well, I'll give a couple. There's, um, I just learned about this from a set of Mercer Island counselors, but there's a website, it's called the Scooty Fund. Oh. And that's S-C-O-O-T-Y, the Scooty Fund, the Scooty Foundation. And it's a, it's a family that brought this forward from Mercer Island and they did it in such an amazing way. But they have a helpline. They have resources listed on their website. And that's a lot of courage. So I think it's a beautiful example of a family said, we loved our son, yeah. <laughs> especially the sister who I think is the executive director was like, I love my brother. And um, they really put this together in honor of him and his journey, a phenomenal young man. Um, there's, a, there's a locally grown website that has locally grown experts on it. And it's called nowmattersnow.org. And it's a beautiful resource, has free trainings on it, links to other resources. But what I find easy, accessible for families is it has videos. And I actually ask many families to watch videos with their young person Mm. has a section called young ambassadors. So if we know that somebody can only tolerate a minute and six seconds, they've got it. If somebody can watch eight minutes, they've got it. And lots of resources that normalize this discussion and really role model. If your life has been touched by this, or there's a concern, this is real, normal human beings talking about what they did that worked and what it was like for them to have this experience of conversing about it. Um, It goes without saying, there's the crisis text line. Mm -hmm. It's a 741-741. I'm always shocked about how many people don't know about these resources, Mm -hmm. as well as the suicide prevention lifeline. Yeah. This is when I don't know where to turn. Not that I'm in the throes of thinking of dying, but I want to also find out some information. These are good, easy, 24 hour a day resources to get a hold of. And I think that's, that's when I think about accessibility. I think of uh, sadly, and with a lot of respect and appreciation, families that have shared with me what they wish they could have, should have, and would have known. Mm-hmm. So I'm passionate about saying, here's in your hands, some is better than none. And a little bit of that right medicine goes a long way to help get you to that place where you can ask the questions, hold the conversation, look into the eyes of your loved one and say like, I see you and I hear you and you're not alone. The meta message I think for our young people as we're coming out of COVID and watching and walking tenderly forward with what's the next thing is to say, I see you. Yeah. You're not alone and I'm not going to be perfect. And I may not have the answers, but I will be by your side and we'll figure something out together. Yeah. 
Well, Sarah, I am so glad that you could join me today. This has been a great conversation. Um, we're also going to include some additional uh, resources in the links to the, the episode. So if anyone needs additional support, like uh, the organization that you work for, Thera Health, or outside therapy resources, we'll include some of that information great. as well. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to Holding Ground. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into Holding Ground. You can hear us here every Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKNW. I'm Laura Richard, Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. And we'll see you next week.